I genuinely am only funny by mistake. <laughs> so there have been quite a few times where I've said something and the audience have really laughed. And I thought, oh, that's, that's lovely, but I have no idea why they're laughing. And then on the train home, I think, ah, oh, that's why, because I've said something which has got some filthy double entendre if it's cats down. And I had no idea. This week on Walking the Dog, I took Ray to the Oxfordshire countryside to go for a stroll with countdown legend Susie Dent. Susie's a cat owner, but she's a huge dog fan, so Ray was well in there. We had the loveliest chat about her childhood passion for books and language and the incredible career she's gone on to have as the queen of Dictionary Corner. Susie's one of the most charmingly modest people I've ever met. She'll tell you, I studied a bit in America. What she actually means is I have a master's degree from Princeton. She's just totally unaffected and has this very serene energy. She's basically a joy to be around. She also does a fabulous podcast with Giles Brandreth called Something Rhymes With Purple about their shared love of language. And you can go and see them live at London's Fortune Theatre on December the 18th. There are some dates for Jan and Feb too. So book your tickets at thefortunetheatre.com. I loved my walk with Susie and I really hope you do too. Let's hand over to the fabulous woman herself. Here's Susie and Ray. difficult to see when it's dark though. <laughs> Imagine you're quite difficult to see. We've got this um, one dog on our road that's been fitted with sleigh bells and goes for walks, I don't know, 15 times a day. So she's constantly got what sounds like a reindeer going up and down or Santa going up and down our road. I don't know if I need to put his lead on, Susie. Um, no, I don't think you do. I think it's fine. I'm going to follow you. Okay, perfect. Right, Raymond, can you follow Susie? <laughs> Yeah. I think he looks quite good with you. <laughs> oh, I would gladly take you home, Raymond. He looks a little bit discombobulated, though. I mean, we're barely a minute in and already <laughs> I've had a discombobulated from Dent. Oh, uh, yeah. I could not course. be happier. <laughs> um, so I'm going to yeah. introduce... I'm with the wonderful Susie Dent. And... We're in, should we say, the Oxfordshire area? We are. And I have Raymond with me because Susie is dogless. I am. I am dogless, um, but I have massive dog envy. Um, I spend my life cuddling other people's dogs. And I have a rescue cat from Battersea who I adore, but I have to say she's the only, probably the only cat that I really, really cherish because I'm much more of a dog person and she's extremely scared so uh, I couldn't have a dog with Bo but also I'm just not at home enough yeah. and I just worry it would be the stress of leaving the dog at home so for all those reasons I don't have one but I will I'm determined to I grew up with dogs and need to go back there so yeah so I'm basically coveting your relationship with Raymond I adore them yeah so talk me through your history with dogs, Susie. My history with dogs is essentially that I well, grew up with a slightly mad Springer Spaniel called Tufty, named after some children's programme that's long forgotten. I remember Tufty. I remember Tufty, but I can't actually really remember who Tufty was. It wasn't a dog, I don't think. It was a I squirrel. Don't, I don't want to boast, but I think I was a member of the Tufty Club. <gasps> I think I was too. It was a squirrel, right? It was, was he a squirrel? Tufty I, Club and the Puffin Club. So I grew up with um, with Tufty and then heartbroken obviously when uh, he died and he died when hi hello uh, so yes yeah, so Tufty died and then my mum got another Springer and my dad because my parents were something when I was about 13 he's always had uh, golden retrievers and their names always began with a B so we had Bumble and we had Barty and we had Bartleby and Barney so I just always have always grown up surrounded by dogs and I, I really do miss them I also fell totally in love with a guide dog that came regularly to the countdown studios pre-covid when we had audiences mm. called Bruce and his owner Craig and I did all the things 
that I shouldn't have done because I didn't realise you're not supposed to stroke guide dogs or pet them or give them food or anything and I did all of the above. I didn't know that either. No, if they're working you're not supposed to distract them essentially. But I would bring biscuits in, I would go over and shower him with affection because I was dog starved and yeah he's just gorgeous um so i miss i miss lovely bruce oh well you were telling me about your dogs growing up and i'm interested to know a bit more about um susie jr because mm. you grew up is it kind of surrey you grew up yeah around? i grew up in surrey in a little village where i was quite distanced from my school friends i was lived quite a long way away from them but that was okay because i was pretty solitary as a child have an older sister who just she's looked after me all my life I love her to bits um but we kind of did our separate things and mine was to take off on my bike with chocolate and ice pops remember them in my saddlebag and just go and sit by this this little stream or ford nearby and I would just go and sit on the rickety bridge and be quite romantic and melancholy that's what I used to do. Oh, I um, love so I you, Susie. Then it's a bit sort of romantic poet. Yeah, I've, I've always lived in my head way too much, but obviously that was there from the start. So that was me. I was also a geek or a nerd or a SWAT, all three, long before they became fashionable. I just lost myself in French and German predominantly and the capital books because um, modern languages are my first love particularly German which I adore and even now when I hear German I feel like I'm coming home strange and so and your parents what did your parents do Susie so my father was a textile agent so he was always really in the fashion business and a lot of my siblings went into the same industry uh, really and my mum had worked as an estate agent for quite a long time and then was a stay-at-home mum when we were growing up mm. uh, so not they're not linguists at all so I feel a bit of an anomaly from that point of view and you mentioned your siblings you, you, yes so you have a sister I have an older sister who I grew up with I have a stepsister um, I had a stepbrother who sadly died and I have a half-sister Naomi, who um, lives down in Devon. Oh, Susie, I'm really sorry about your stepbrother. Oh. I lost my sister actually, and it's oh. it's a really um it's a tough thing, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is, especially so young. He's only forty, so oh, yeah, it was. It's tough, particularly, obviously, for my stepmum, uh, yeah. who was astonishing. So, yeah, never easy uh, at all. But Naomi, um, are you sure you're happy just being ferried around here? I feel bad that you're having to carry no, him. It's nice and warm. <laughs> um, I have to. I have to give you another word because it's been uppermost in my mind driving here today, which is we picked a day with apricity, which is one of my all-time favourite words. I don't know if you know about apricity, which is the warmth of the sun on your back on a winter's day, and it's just this is it, isn't it? I love apricity. It's just gorgeous. There you go. That's apricity. I'm turning my back to the sun. <laughs> I think Raymond's enjoying it too. And was your house, when you were growing up, were you, I'm getting this sense of, as you say, quite a studious, I guess introspective, quiet kid? Yeah, definitely. Uh, and was your house a sort of, what was the, I suppose, the energy and the atmosphere in there? Was everyone a, a bit like you in the family? Um, I think it was quite a quiet house. When we went to Battersea for our rescue cat, the cat, the cat we have at the moment, I, I remember them saying, that she really needed a quiet house because she's so scared of everything and everybody. And I remember thinking, yeah, we are actually really quiet. So I feel like that quietness has been with me all my life. I remember it being freezing because my dad never switched the heating on. <laughs> and so I would find any sunny spot that I possibly could and would perch there, often on my knees, just um, reading, really. Really? I mean, I had fun too, but I definitely wasn't a party animal. That didn't really happen until I went to uni. So, yeah, I guess I was quite quiet. I, I mean, I, but happily so. Uh, um, you know, not lonely. Of, what sort of gang were you in at school then? Were you were you chess club? Uh, no, I wasn't chess club, but I probably would say the uncool gang, probably. But not, not in any way that we were bullied. I think we just weren't cutting edge. <laughs> but a gang was sort of quite happy. I think we were... 
fairly balanced, I hope. I think it was fine. I mean, it was. I went to a convent, so really? that too really suited me because the style of teaching was definitely everyone sit down and be quiet. Yeah. Uh, so I've never really been hugely good at noise. I was really scared of clowns as well <laughs> at any circuses because, you know, because of the noise they brought with them. So I think I am noise averse, probably. Did you have... Were you kind of anxious at all, or did you did you worry? Were you a worrier when you were a kid? Uh, definitely a worrier now. I think I was... No, I, I do remember a, fra- a phase when I was 13 when I went through the sort of hormonal angst stage and wrote a secret diary, which I locked up with a key, and yes, just said how miserable I was and how nobody understood me. But again, it's all that kind of back of the hand against the forehead stuff. I think I probably was quite melodramatic. Um, not in a histrionic way, but just in a woe is me way. But not for long, thankfully. But it was, it was pretty grim when I was in it. But then presumably as well, because your parents, were they, your parents split up, didn't they? Was it around that time? Or? Uh, yeah, probably around that time. And, and also, I have to say, the really positive outcome from that was that I did turn to go down there oh yeah this way yeah um i did turn to books and work as my kind of oasis really that was where i felt safe and comfortable Mm. and so yeah so from that point of view it had really positive repercussions uh, for me and i found words really early or they found me i just was always always drawn to them so even now i can't have a ketchup bottle on the table (laughs) without having to read the label I just, it's always the printed word for me. It just kind of draws me in. Really? Um, strange, Emily. I think a lot of people, I think that's a very kind of inspirational thing because it's very hard, I think, for a lot of people to find their passion. Yeah. And it feels like you were pretty certain of your passion from a very young age. Yeah, I was. I probably wasn't particularly aware of it, but I, you know, I... I sort of struggled with areas where I had to use the parts of my brain that was kind of practical so put me in front of geometry or trying to do origami and you know I was just hopeless but I like that the only two things we can find that Susie Dent can't do is origami and <laughs> I know, geometry that's just tip of the iceberg there's <laughs> stuff I can't do but algebra which involved letters that's how I like to say I absolutely loved so uh, yeah so the, the compulsion was definitely there from quite early and I just would sit in the back of the car we'd go on these family trips at weekends where we'd take trips to the south coast even in winter and I was so skinny that I would be freezing all the time and I just wanted to stay in the back of the car because I had my vocabulary books with me and I wasn't trying to learn them for a test or anything I just loved being in this world because you know French vocabulary books, for example, would be kind of thematic. So you'd go to the seaside and you'd learn all the words for the seaside. They're always called, we have called Vive la Velo, we have. <laughs> there were always yeah. these strange... And you know what I love about vocab books, particularly when you're learning at that age, is that this sort of very pure, innocent world where, you know, everyone's so polite and speaks very formally and... Yes. Yes, that is true. I mean, I still feel that if I went to France now, I would probably speak as though I was in a Balzac novel yeah. because I that, that was the kind of stuff that I lost myself in whereas German I sort of yeah I lived there for a bit and so I'm, I'm okay with German I think and I just adore the sound of it so much where do you stand Emily on calling yourself his mum well I wouldn't say fur baby no I'm not a fur baby person I do sometimes you find yourself saying mum it just happens quite organically yes because i think like when you go to the vet and things they call out <laughs> the name you know and they'll say raymond dean <laughs> i never really thought of him as being raymond dean oh. i mean i don't but then they'll say things which is very sweet like well you know we'll get let mummy put you up here and you think oh i miss mummy oh so i so see you just kind of follow suit i don't sometimes i find it really nauseating it i think it's when when I hear people saying, come to mummy, come to mummy, that sort of thing, I just think, no. But then I totally get the, the offspring bit. Come on, Ray. So, 
I like, do you know what? I really like the sound of Susie Dent. I, I think I would have really liked you, but I was one of those kids at school. I don't know if you were aware of these kids who I was a people pleaser and I was so desperate to fit in. Yes. That I would desperately try and join the sort of glamorous popular gang who didn't really accept me. Yes. So I spent my life with my fingertips clinging on and them slightly being a bit mean to me. Oh, no, it wasn't. I they do nice. absolutely recognise that. I, I had a sort of slightly strange best friend relationship that was a little bit like that because it was very imbalanced and I also was kind of hanging on to her coattails. And I don't think she was particularly horrible to me, but understandably, she also had other friends. So I remember that excruciating moment when the teachers ask you in alphabetical order who you want to sit next to in class, you know, where, where your desk is going to be. And... Or maybe it wasn't alphabetical order actually because I would have been quite high but she she always came first and I would sit there in absolute dread wondering whether she was going to choose me or not so I do recognize that feeling of wishing to belong but I think that's quite normal isn't it I think that ripples through life as well that we all pick a tribe and desperately want to be part of it do you remember a moment Susie like connecting with a book or you know one of those sort of light bulb moments where you thought, um, God, I, I think this might be the thing I want to do. When were you aware of what a, it's a lexicographer you are? Yeah, um, I know, such a mouthful. My, my job comes with all sorts of really alienating vocabulary, etymology and lexicography <laughs> and that sort of thing. I, well, not until really late, actually, because obviously... Everything I do now revolves around English, pretty much. Um, I mean, I try and bring German in as much as I can. I've just written a book about emotions where I was looking at ones expressed in other languages as well. But for the most part, it's English. And that came really late. So when I finished university here, I had no clue what I wanted to do, but I quite fancied living in New York. So I went to study in the US for three or four years, but realised quite early on I didn't want to be an academic, that wasn't for me. So I wasn't as so sort of studious, I suppose, that I was happy to sit and write, you know, for, for hours on end. I'm quite fidgety, I'm quite fidget can I, and can quite I tell restless. You, I'm going to tell you something, Susie, and this reveals a lot about you, that you just said, I went to university here and then I went to university in the US. And what you didn't say was that you went to Oxford and then Princeton. And I find that interesting. <laughs> well, because frankly, on paper, it's the first thing I would have said when I turned up. Oh, no, no. On, <laughs> on paper, I know it sounds amazing. But honestly, I think with Princeton, it was, there was this kind of assumption that because I went to Oxford, I would naturally be brilliant. It was a sort of, you know, reputational thing. So I didn't, I don't think it really mattered what I was like. Also, I was doing German, which was, and comparative literature, which, you know, were probably not hotly contested subjects i think yeah, that's very to be an easy architect or something. yeah <laughs> so um tell me anyway. about oxford what were you like were you excited to get in you must have been or do yes. you think it was sort of expected by that point no, uh no not at all so my school did not cater for um oxford at all so it was not something that i'd been directed towards really it was just something i felt like i wanted to do um n my mum and dad hadn't been to university so again, it wasn't expected from them. Oh, I'm taking you to a. Where am I taking you? Oh, Should we can go down here. I think. This is this is lovely, isn't it? I think we can go down here. Fingers crossed. Well, those tractor marks. Yeah, this used to be a royal forest. Oh. I discovered this very recently. That yeah, it was where village folk came to kind of gather their fuel and things. They were allowed in. Anyway. Going back to expectations, I knew nothing about Oxford at all and I chose my college Somerville because it sounded like an American ice cream parlour, genuinely. I thought it sounded really lovely and happy. So that's why I chose it and was just really, really lucky. I had a fantastic tutor who interviewed me and happily thought I'd be okay. So... It was, not, it was not a clearly defined path for me at all. I just did what I thought sounded really nice and was lucky enough to get in. Uh, but, and also genuinely, I think, I think I don't know where I'm taking you now. 
We can go back if you like and go back to the proper path. I'm not sure how Raymond's going to... Shall we? Yeah, because okay. I don't want him to get caught up in brambles. Oh, Susie, you're so kind to Raymond. Oh, I love Raymond. I do. I can always pick you up again if you want. And so when you were at Oxford, were you sort of going out and partying or...? Yeah, um, yes, eventually. I, I struggled a bit at the beginning because I didn't really know anyone or not many people. And Somerville at the time... It's such a lovely college. I'm so so lucky that I went there actually because I, I go back there now and its current principal Jan is is just lovely. But as I say, I kind of it was sort of coincidental that I ended up there, and I was living in what looked like a celebrity squares block. So there were just lots of square windows, and I was in one of them that looked out onto the the main drag. Mm. and I was acutely aware of being in on a Saturday night when obviously that was not the thing to do. Should we go this way? And okay. I didn't really want to put my light on, so I would sit there, again quite sort of reasonably happy, I didn't feel too anxious, and I would sit and listen to Joan Armour trading, me, myself, I, honestly, what a, what a sad person, and... UB40, Elvis Costello, and I would just sit there and be quite happy. And then that was my first term, and then I decided that I would join the drama group. So I became a stage manager, which essentially was a gopher for everybody. But that way I met a lot of people and, you know, made some lifelong friends, which was great. So eventually I did go there, and then, yes, I was, I was a party animal. I made up for lost time, for sure. Um, so and I'm really glad I did, but it just took me quite a long time. And you then went to Princeton. Yeah. Which is incredible. What an extraordinary achievement. Were you how what was it like going over to America? What were the sort of differences you, you experienced? Did you feel slightly fish out of water or did you did you blend in? Because I yes. imagine it to be quite you know, that sort of preppy college preppy. vibe. Yes, there was definitely there was a real distinction between those who were undergraduates and those who were at the postgrad college. So those at the postgrad college were definitely thought of as being very geeky. In fact, graduate college was nicknamed GC, Geek Castle. Um, so I fitted sort of in there, but I was acutely aware of... I wore a lot of black at this time, and I would wear these big silver hooped earrings and so I looked very different to the chinos and polo shirts and I was quite happy with that actually and then I met some fellow anomalies and was incredibly happy there it was it was great but yeah again went there not really knowing anybody and then taking a little while to to settle in but I look back now and think wow I could just amazed that I did it I remember flying out to JFK not knowing anyone uh, having to spend the night at the airport because it was snowing so hard the shuttle bus, bus couldn't come and get us and just I don't know how I took it all in my stride I definitely wouldn't be able to now mm. but yeah and then it was a really happy time and then as I say I didn't I knew I didn't want to stay on and do a PhD so I did my MA and then decided to teach and I was given a class of freshmen and they were called freshmen even though it was mixed who had to study a language it was a requirement and I kind of got the ones who were really reluctant to be there at all but they were just brilliant so I taught them German for quite a while. And so you ended up working for Oxford University Press? Yes. But I feel it was pretty soon after that wasn't it that you got your first TV break? Yes yeah, so I Essentially, when I got back from the US, I was living in London. I very luckily became part of this fair-rented flat scheme in Westminster. So I went to live with an acquaintance, someone I didn't know very well, but who was living in Broadwick Street in the middle of Soho by Berwick Street. And I went to live there, which was incredible, at a pretty low rent. And loved Soho and lived in Soho for the first two years while I got the job at... OUP so I commuted and probably within about oh, two months I suppose my boss said we have this arrangement with this program called Countdown and we provide the word referees 
would you like to go on? And the answer was a definite no. And it was a no three times until... Why? Just not me. It was, that was absolutely not my chosen trajectory at all. T- TV was just not something I was particularly interested in. And it, it's funny. I, I, I mean, I look back now and I'm, I have the best gig in the world and I adore it. But I, I know for a lot of people in TV, it is this magical world that they would never be without. I don't think I ever saw it as being this sort of dream heavenly place that I wanted to be part of I've sort of been quite not cynical about it but just sort of fairly neutral about it I suppose Mm. and I think I'm just very happy not with my head below the parapet really just fly below the radar just to introduce another metaphor and um, just get on with the stuff that I was doing so I've never really wanted to be part of the circuit just because I'm quite shy I'm very self-conscious that was one thing I didn't mention about me when I was a teenager I was acutely self-conscious just so aware of how I looked and how other people might view me etc and how did that manifest itself just just in terms of your behavior just uh yeah just kind of I said shrinking from sort of big gatherings maybe Mm. Uh, and yeah I think I shrugged that off at university really but that wish just to be to live a kind of quiet life, I suppose, mm. was always there. And anyway, I did eventually say yes, because it became quite clear that this was going to be part of my job description. So I went and now famously, <laughs> for me, sat next to Rula Lenska, who was amazing, and Richard and Carol were there, and did my first show, looking terrified. And unfortunately, you can still see it on YouTube. Well, I have seen it. Yes. And there's petrified. a bit where Rula Lenska in this fabulously throaty actressy voice and she says, we've got a lovely girl here and she's rather nervous. <laughs> yeah. I just look so rigid. I, I actually think I look arrogant, whereas in fact I was just terrified. And do I'm you know just... What? I don't think you do. I actually found that really touching watching that because I think it just... I suppose it reminded me of a time when people weren't didn't spend their entire childhood I suppose becoming accustomed to being on to performing because it was pre-social media that was so very true too sort of an innocence and a I suppose an authenticity about it which I actually rather loved oh well yeah I just I'm not sure I really knew how I was supposed to behave but yeah, I mean, Rich and Carol were amazing. And, and I was I have to say, I was one of many people who sat in that corner. So we rotated. And I probably went up all the while working at OUP about two or three times a year. So, uh, yeah, so Rich and Carol were there. They, a few years later, decided, well, 10 years later, actually, pretty much, decided that they wanted to make a full-time team of it. And, and I was there, thank goodness and thought actually this would be a lovely thing to do i could be at home more because i had my um my daughter was still quite young so it kind of worked out really well from that point of view and this year is my 30th i believe it and i believe it how did you find suddenly being recognized and being do you know i wasn't honestly emily i really wasn't i until the comedy version of Countdown came out, I really didn't. If I was out with Carol, or even Rachel when she started, then yes, people would recognise me. But honestly, barely before. And if people did recognise me, they would come up and tell me what their favourite word was or how brilliant the current contestant was on Countdown. And so it was a really benign, lovely thing. And then because Cat's Down, as we call it, is prime time, that's when the recognition factor, you know, went up dramatically but still it still seems like it's a really lovely thing uh you know that that people do genuinely just want to talk about how much they love countdown or you know whatever their linguistic bugbear is at the time so it still feels like a really a, a world that's still rooted in what i love which is words i think why you're so great on cats does countdown is because I think you're being you yeah, and you're there doing what you're good at because there would be a, 
a temptation. It would be very understandable to think, I'm going to have to start coming up with some zingers and Oh, I being did funny. feel that at the beginning. I really did. And I suppose even now people think, gosh, you know, you need to get your own back on Jimmy because of his barbed introductions, <laughs> which he's always quite apologetic about, I have to say, afterwards. But I really did, at the beginning, feel like I had to be funny. I'm not sure whether Rachel felt the same thing, but I had to wait a while. I suppose this is becoming a recurring theme in what, in what we're talking about. I had to wait a while until I found who I was on that show. And it just it, you know, it just didn't work. I genuinely am only funny by mistake. <laughs> so there have been quite a few times where I've said something and the audience have really laughed. And I thought, oh, that's, that's lovely, but I have no idea why they're laughing. And then on the train home, I think, ah, oh, that's why, because I've said something which has got some filthy double entendre if it's cats down, and I had no idea. Trying to be funny, particularly on a show with such brilliant comedians, was just ne was never going to work. And so now I am just me. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm Jimmy Stooge. I am, yeah, I do the words bit. I think they probably edit it so I look as if I'm looking down on, on everybody, which I'm not. I'm laughing as much as anyone else, but it's almost like it's a sort of role that's been slightly assigned to me. Yeah. And I'm happy with that. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Did you learn that? Did you watch yourself back and sort of think, I okay. never watch myself back, ever. Never listen to myself, never watch anything. I think like a lot of people who feel the same, it's just especially... If you are self-conscious, it's just not worth it, really. Hate being photographed. Do you? I hate it with a passion, which is also a little bit unfortunate in today's selfie world. But I'm so happy that I escaped that. As, I mean, you must be as well, but, you know, I'm so glad that social media wasn't around as I was growing up because that would have upped the self-consciousness by a factor of, you know, a million. I find you a very calm presence on TV. Oh, thank you. I do feel at home there, very much at home, you know, because it is, it's my world and, and Countdown is genuinely my second family. I mean, a lot of the people on the team, including the cameras and people behind the scenes, have been there for as long as I have. So it is definitely a home away from home and during lockdown I really miss them so much. So I do, I do feel quite centred when I'm there and it's partly because I suppose with cameras, you've got no sense really of who's on the other side mm. uh, and you know who's watching. It feels like, still feels like quite a sort of intimate setting, especially if you know everybody quite well. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't. I hope I'm not a flappy person, and it's really nice for you to say that I, I come across as being calm. I think inner turmoil is <laughs> something I try to hide, I suppose, sometimes. But I don't feel it. I don't feel it on countdown at all. But, and you were talking about this sort of anxiety, or not anxiety, but you said that you tend to fret quite a bit. Are you a, you're yeah, a worrier? I'm quite selective in my fretting. I, I definitely get this gene from my dad, um, who, who is a worrier and who will always sort of foresee a negative outcome rather than a positive one. But I'm trying really hard to change this. And I tell you, he's been brilliant at trying to kind of reconfigure my brain as a friend. is Rob Rinder, who is... He's a worrier himself, but he also really trains himself to try and be glass half full. And, and that is definitely what I'm trying to do. Really? Yeah, um, because I just waste too much energy on predicting the worst. And I, I don't do it, I hope I don't do it too explicitly and worry everyone else in the process, but I definitely inside that's what's going on. Do you think that's sometimes the tax you pay on, I suppose thinking a lot reading a lot yes know? definitely and and as I say living in my head you know there's this great German word um Kopfkino which is mind cinema and it's essentially playing out the narrative of what's going to happen usually an unpleasant one in your head the mind cinema Kopfkino Kopfkino mind cinema yeah because German is great for I mean, obviously, there's the obvious ones, Schadenfreude, etc. Yes. But German is great for those kind of words, describing very specific things. Yes. I mean, I think that's why people will always say, oh, there'll be a word in German for this, because you, can, you get these sort of linguistic pylons where you can just basically 
as I say, like Lego, build, build these kind of amazing compound words. But they also do, German also does yearning really well, which is probably why I'm attracted to it. <laughs> and um, I mean, now, the part of the reason I love where we are today is just the trees. I'm a total tree lover. And they have this wonderful word, Waldeinsamkeit, which is forest solitude. And it's just going to reconfigure yourself. Well, you see, recombobulate. I love that because I'm quite obsessed by German romanticism in painting. I oh, like that Caspar yes. David Friedrich. Yes, of course. And a soul in quiet contemplation, pondering the universe, normally looking out over a cliff. And waiting. It's just that sense of waiting, I think, which I've often felt. I always feel like I'm sort of waiting for things to happen, not always really good ones, but that sort of sense of anticipation. I think you find in those paintings as well. Um, so, and there's also there's a great Japanese word as well with a similar tree thing, which is Shinrin Yoku, which is forest bathing. Have you heard of this? And it's a big thing in Japan apparently, where they go and bathe. Susie, we need to mention. Well, I want to mention your girls. We won't talk in depth about them because they've got their own lives and yes, they didn't ask to be really on this. No, but you've got two girls and I want to know just generally what sort of a mum you are are you are you a panicky mum are you I mean all mums worry but does does that uh, no I don't think I'm panicky I hope not anyway I am gonna come up what sort of mum am I but I just I would I would like to think that I'm sort of quite a gentle mum I probably could be pushier if I tried. Uh, so I would like to think that I'm fairly empathetic, but I'm sure I have all sorts of shortcomings, which my daughter could tell you about, but I know I wouldn't say I'm panicky. How great to have Susie Dent as a mum though. Oh it's no, just... honestly, I would take them around and kind of point out a flower and say, do you know where Daisy comes from? It's a shortening of the day's eye because it opens its petals at dawn. And they'd be just like, well, originally they loved it. And then eventually it was just like, mum. I just, I just get the mum, as all parents know, and then we move on. So I'm not sure it's that great having me as my mum. No, because you grow up thinking, you're slightly deluded into thinking your parents know everything. Whereas in your case, you do know everything. I absolutely don't. <laughs> I remember during lockdown trying to cope with parallelograms and feeling at such a loss that I honestly didn't know where to turn. And also... Even though Rachel Riley insists that maths and its teaching hasn't changed in 200 years, I swear that times tables are different now and, and long division and things. Susie, I need to talk about your fabulous podcast with Giles Brandre. Oh, yes. It's fun. Something rhymes with purple. Yes. And the podcast has been a huge success. And you're now... You're doing it sort of live as well, aren't you? You're taking yeah, it. Yeah, we're doing been... some live shows, which have been great actually, um, in London and then hopefully next year around, around the country. And oh, it's just you know what, you must have found this, Emily. The most surprising thing for me about the podcast is the community that you build up, and just how engaged they are. Because as I was saying with Telly, you don't really get a sense of who's watching, and obviously people will get in touch via Twitter or whatever, but you don't get that whole sense so much of a, co a conversation I think and that's that's really taken me by surprise and I love that about what we call the purple people <laughs> um, and you know they're also just uh, so many of them are kind of from around the world as well which is also great but this was entirely Giles's idea uh, he just said I want to do a podcast about words and I'd like to do it with you and we you two were sort of mates anyway yeah, so Giles has been on Countdown for way longer than me. I mean, I think he was there almost since the beginning, so we're talking 40 years, really. So that's where I knew him. And, um, yeah, I was lucky that he just said, you know, let's do this together. And, yeah, I think we, I mean, we're on almost 300 shows now, which, um, which is great. So it's been a real revelation for me, podcasting. Mm. And do you yeah. think it suits your personality as well? Because there's a sort of a quiet intimacy to it in yeah. a way that I think TV probably is the more natural home of 
slightly look at me extroverts. Yeah. And Apart from Countdown, I'd say. I think Countdown is slightly different and allows me to sit in the corner and people to win a teapot. So I do feel like that's a glorious exception. But yeah, I, I do know what you mean. Yes, it is a very intimate setting and even more so now that we record from home. And I just, you know, we're so different, Giles and I, in every respect. And he is the extrovert. He is the... You'd see when, when you come to see... If anyone comes to see our shows... He is the showman and he is fantastic at getting the audience on board. And I will be the one, hopefully, bringing up the sort of, you know, the, the knowledge of the words that we're discussing and that kind of thing. But it does work really well. And his name dropping is astonishing. I mean, honestly, I said to him the other day, Charles, you have to have a separate podcast or write a book about people you've met in the lift. Because every time anyone is mentioned, whether it's Michael Jackson, or Mariah Carey, he says, oh yes, I've been in a lift with them. And he was telling this brilliant story about Michael Jackson the other day when he, um, he apparently said, oh, hello, Mr. Jackson, it's lovely to meet you, and got no reply whatsoever. And when Giles questioned the bodyguard after Michael Jackson had walked out of the lift, he said, um, well, I hope I wasn't too rude in saying something to him. And he said, don't worry, sir, Michael never talks on a Monday. Oh, I just did an Irish accent there. Anyway, Michael never talks on a Monday. <laughs> so I thought, I'm immediately adopting this. No conversation on a Monday. Do you find yourself drawn to, I suppose, quite big personalities? Yes, but there's a limit. So if someone is so out there and such a performer that they just kind of smother you with energy and and have little subtlety then it goes the other way i just retreat i just become a complete turtle and just you know it makes me more introverted so um uh, uh, giles level is perfect and you know there are, i have met some people who i just think oh i can't i can't deal with this and you know it's just like the clown thing i was saying you know i just i find that sort of level of noise and energy a bit disconcerting but that's just me and I think that's quite a lot of social media isn't it unfortunately yeah um, and do you so I want to know what Su how Susie expresses sort of displeasure well I'd love to think that all the words that I put out on Twitter which are these amazing historical insults would be ones that I would use people often think well you must bamboozle people with your vocabulary and they won't know whether you're complimenting them or insulting them <laughs> and I don't tend to use them as much as I should so things like you know I guess oh you're such a mumpsimus I might I might say that and that's someone who insists that they're right despite clear evidence that they're not but I wouldn't say you are a flap doodling ultra crepidarian so that's not how I express displeasure I think I I think silence I think I've learned the value of silence really which is just not to engage mm. and I remember being really scared talking of Twitter and social media being really scared about going on there because I wasn't sure I could deal with the level of vitriol I was positive I would get because you know obviously it's there and it can really ruin people's lives but I decided quite early on just to put words out there rather than me mm. and I think that's been my safety net really because you know, the vast majority of people who do engage are just word lovers, really. And that's, and that's lovely. So that, too, has been a really nice community. Do you, when you have to confront someone, are you OK at that? Do you struggle with that? Do you feel nervous? Um, yeah, I would say not great at confrontation. And that, interestingly, where I am really outspoken is when animals are involved. So I do some work for, um, for guide dogs. I mentioned Bruce, the lovely guide dog, where I'm becoming one of their, my guides, a sighted guide, so I can take people out and hopefully describe what I'm seeing and allow them to go to places they couldn't necessarily. But if there's any kind of animal cruelty, and guide dogs get quite a lot, unfortunately, from other people, I, that's it, I'm right in. No, no hogs barred. Oh, is that true? It yeah, from far away because my eyesight's a bit poor and I haven't got my glasses on. It looks like a rhino. That's what I thought. Did you? Should we sit on it? Should we take a picture on it? Yeah. 
So I'm interested in what you were saying about the confronting thing that you... Yes. The silence thing is interesting, isn't it? It's, it's very powerful, that. Yeah, especially for a linguist. Quite strange <laughs> to say I don't use words. Um, but I think it's just something you learn as you grow up is not to, not to give the knee-jerk reaction, which is so tempting, and then repent in leisure. leisure. So I'm trying, trying to master that. I know, but I can imagine getting an email from you and just, and just reeling. Oh no, I definitely don't write those. I'd love to think that I could do that, but um, no, I don't really let rip. Do you not? No, I don't have outbursts. Not I, really. I have a rule, and I was telling a younger person this the other day. Just something I've learned. Yeah. Is never express any extreme emotion over text yes and i realized it's something i haven't stuck to much in my life but that's the one thing i've got a consistent record on no it's true uh, do you, where do you stand on emojis because they can be quite powerful the trouble with emojis is that i worry that the ones i would select i would send them and the response at the other end would be okay boomer because uh, okay. I worry that I send a boomer one. For example, the Red Love Heart is a boomer one. Oh my goodness. I've heard that the Red Love, Love Heart is only used by, yeah, by us. <laughs> and essentially no one else. And I also randomly choose the one that's pulsating in the wrong context. You know, the pulsating Red Heart. So I get that wrong. So, yeah. I mean, people often think that I should hate emojis because it, they're trying to replace words. But actually, they're one of the fastest moving areas of language. Susie, yeah. And that gorgeous should we see who it's dedicated yeah. to or donated by joseph burt davy our scholar travels yet the loved hillside isn't that beautiful our scholar travels yet the loved hillside so it's a lovely memorial bench isn't it it's beautiful isn't it lovely having yet in that context yeah you don't really have that much do you in modern do you not at all no, it travels yet. I think it's like travels still. That's how I'm interpreting it yeah. anyway. Well, you know what? I trust you. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's really beautiful. I'd quite like to donate mm. a bench, actually. Do you know what I've noticed spending today with you? Hmm. Is that I've really raised my game on the language front. Oh. And I think I've not, I didn't, wasn't consciously doing it, but I think I have been searching a bit for the appropriate word whereas normally i'd be a bit lazy whereas i notice i use a word like fret now i haven't used that since i was in a guitar shop <laughs> i think i thought i'm with susie dent so i'm going to use fret and i feel really proud of myself i bet honestly people often worry about their language i, I can be as inarticulate as the next person and i've, I've had people say i really couldn't bring myself to text you because i didn't know if you'd expect <laughs> semicolons and things like no oh, I really don't and uh, speaking of frets and guitar shops I did hugely embarrass myself once by going in and asking for some plectra <laughs> instead of a couple of plectrums and was generally laughed out of the shop so yes are you very conscious about you know there's a lot of pressure there's a brand to protect here so I, if I were you I would be proofreading every text I send, every WhatsApp. Oh, no, not so much, but you probably heard about my book, Word Perfect, which was just a career low, really, you, for do me. Do you want to just remind everyone what Yeah, happened? so what happened was, it was, it was published during uh, lockdown, and the wrong typesetting file, so the first typesetting file, which was full of typesetting errors, etc., uh, plus my own, were, were sent to the printers and that was what was printed. So I didn't get my advanced copy because, you know, there were so many people off and, and staff were thin on the ground, were thin on the ground. So I opened my copy on publication day and saw one, one paragraph where the, it was the, 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 I think. And I just thought, what? What is going on? And, of course, it was called Word Perfect, and it was really very much Word Imperfect. I would have cried. So I did hide under the duvet for quite a while, but I was assured at the time that all publicity is good publicity, and actually, do you know what? It's done better than any of the books <laughs> that I've ever done, so there was a silver lining. Come here, Ray. Talking of crying, Susie, when, are you, are you, do you cry often? 
Um, no, I don't actually. I I think I well use the word fret. I probably fret and might feel the sting of tears, but I don't openly sob very much. How about you? I cry. Do you, a hell it's a of really a lot. good thing. I cry a lot. It's a really good thing. And do you feel better after? I do, but what I've learned as I've got older and is I've almost treat crying. I think it's important to cry, but I try and do controlled crying as an adult. <laughs> okay. So it's almost like I feel it's learning to sit with discomfort is quite important. Yeah, I agree. And do you have an oasis where you go in order to sort of immediately make you feel better? Because for me, predictably, it's a dictionary or, or a book where I just escape and think all is okay because they're my sort of known parameters. So I've kind of learned that as well because there's nothing worse than feeling, you know, like a, a sort of toddler sobbing over something they just absolutely can't control. And as you say, that kind of discomfort at not being able to control things is actually quite tricky. So I think going to a place where you feel a refuge is really important. Would you literally sit down and read the dictionary then? Yeah. But it's the best book in the world, honestly, Emily. It's just got so many adventures in it. It's, it's not just a word and a definition. There are just so many stories in there. So, so yeah, I I'm going to go home and I'm going to try this Susie Dent therapy, I'm calling it. Okay. What do I do? Do I just open it randomly? Get a dictionary which has got word stories in them, so etymologies. So that's, that's where I go, is to the, you know, the history of a word and what it used to mean and why it used to mean that and that kind of thing. And, and then you'll get lost. Yeah, so get, get a really good dictionary. It can be a printed dictionary. It can be online. I mean, I look at the Oxford English Dictionary online all the time and it's, that is the mother of all dictionaries. It's brilliant. Oh, Susie, do you know, I've, you're very lovely calming person to be with you've oh. got very good energy how would i how would i say that to you is there a german or a french way of saying good energy good energy there's a sort of there's a lovely german word bewusstheit which is a kind of consciousness which i think is being there in the moment and there's another lovely word which i discovered which didn't describe me at all but it's the approach that we could all take which is uh philokali from greek and it's philo meaning loving and kalo meaning beauty, but it's basically loving beauty wherever you find it. So even in the smallest things. Even in that barking dog? Yes, exactly. Look for beauty in the, in the because it's a happy dog, I think. Well, I hope, just like Raymond. So lovely to meet you, Raymond. And it was. I think, do you like Raymond? I do love Raymond. If you ever want a weekend sitter, let me know. Although I would struggle a little bit with our, um, with our cat, although... Given the size, it might be a bit of a standoff. Well, Susie... Oh, look at those dogs. They're just all so excited at seeing each other. I love the way dogs communicate like I know, that. it's brilliant, isn't it? Ray's a bit more a young Susie Dent. Yeah, I think he's very quiet, quite introspective, looking around for guidance, but equally just taking it all in. I would describe him like you as... He's self-possessed and he knows who he is and what he is. And let the barkers bark. That's true, but he also looks like he's waiting for something. So that's another thing we have in common. Let's wait together, Raymond. Susie, can we have a hug? Thank you so much for having me. Let's have a microphone. Oh, we've loved I, I hope I showed you a bit of shot over it. It's just gorgeous. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's a really calming place to be. Love the trees. Beardendrophile. I really hope you enjoyed listening to that and do remember to rate, review and subscribe on iTunes.